exciting for me to see so many faces, um, familiar and unfamiliar, and um, really appreciate you uh, spending the time with me and with us uh, during these extremely difficult times, which we're all trying to do our part to contribute to making a little bit better. I want to thank Rav Shai Held for just holding this whole week together, even as it's gone virtual, who I see on the screen, and especially Morty Labaton, um, who has been working day and night to make sure that we can bring you these programs uh, virtually. So the goal of this class is really um, to help support you in, in ways I'm sure that none of us ever expected, which is to think about how to relate to Mourner's Kaddish in a world in which there are no um, minyanim at our meeting, basically. And I am not here to offer halachic guidance on that. I, there is some late-breaking news on the halachic front. I saw last night the conservative um, law committee put out uh, a tshuva saying that saying Kaddish over, over Zoom is permitted. And out of Israel, um, uh, there was also Benny Lau was publicizing a, uh, a local tshuva from the Orthodox world that was making a similar argument about Kaddish, not exactly bracha levatala, because there's no bracha in it. Um, but I'm not here to um, pass any judgment on those particular halachic issues. I know that Ethan Tucker and Aviva Richmond are working on our approach to this. The purpose of this class is really to give some overview of the Kaddish as a stand-in for something larger than saying a text of liturgy in a minion, and both to look at one version of the story that stands behind the Kaddish, the mourner's Kaddish, as a way to try to understand what the Kaddish is about and what it might mean to take that uh, essence, even if we're not in uh, a minion. And we're also going to look at some medieval recommendations for what to say when you cannot be in a minion in terms of Kaddish. And just sort of the text um, some Hasidic Ashkenaz uh, leaders put together who cared about saying Kaddish and uh, understood that not everybody can pray in a minion. So we'll be able to look at some of those precedents. Let's start us off here. I'm just going to work us through this text. So a little bit of a background on the Mourner's Kaddish as opposed to the other Kaddishes. It's a big scholarly debate about how old the Kaddish is. There's actually an entire book that's written that, that connects the Kaddish to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, in which case um, the Kaddish, or at least the kernel of the Kaddish, might be very, very old, maybe one of the oldest Jewish liturgical texts that there are. But in terms of a, a, a Mourner's text, it was only morphed into a, um, a sort of mourner's Kaddish or Kaddish Yatom, as we'll see, it's really about an orphan saying Kaddish. That only happened in uh, the Middle Ages. And I'm gonna bring you uh, a text here from the Orzarua, who is uh, Germany, 12th century, who is basically, um, this is the, the, the standard text of the story that stands behind the mourner's Kaddish, even though scholarship has done a lot of work on this particular narrative. In fact, there was an article that was published about 15 years ago in which 70 versions of this story from various places in medieval uh, rabbinic literature were analyzed and sorted. Um, this is the one, again, that you'll see probably most often, uh, the one that's printed in the Orzarua. Um, but just know that there are many other versions around, and I brought you one other version of those um, in, this in this source sheet. Um, the so, so again, the practice of mourner's Kaddish is only something that dates back to the Middle Ages, and people often 
point, point to this text as the first place where that happens. Okay, I'm gonna just read, read this text. And uh, again, my, my hope is that what we're gonna do with this text is think about what is the Kaddish standing in for? If you can't say the liturgical text, what does it mean to have a commitment and a relationship to uh, the ideas in the text? And how could we maybe pull that out as its own essential aspect, separate from reciting a text in a minion? Yeah, the obsession with Kaddish starts in the 12th century. I think you'll see that the, the obsession, I don't know if I'm a term of obsession, but the obsession is something that, that takes place later on and even in some of the major halakhic works like Shulchan Aruch, um, it's not really mentioned as a practice that's completely widespread in the way that we understand it now. And, and we'll see how, how this, uh, this grows over time and where we might actually be able to get back on track on what the Kaddish was trying to do as a, a text that guides us as people and, and, and our behavior as opposed to a required thing I need to say with a minion, which is certainly part of it, but not the only part of it, or maybe not even the main part of it. I'm going to read, Min hagenu be'eretz kana'an v'chem min hag b'nei rainus. So it is our custom in the land of Canaan, presumably some part of Germany, and also the land of Rhineland, Rhinus, um, that after the congregation says Ein Kelohenu, which was uh, in some versions of, of daily prayer, Ein Kelohenu was the last uh, prayer, an orphan stands, Hayatom, Omed Hayatom, an orphan stands and says, Kaddish. About Bitsarfat, Ra'iti She'ena Makpidim al but in France, I saw that they're not strict about who says Kaddish, whether that person has parents or doesn't have parents. So already you can see that this custom is developing where not even in Ashkenaz, in the Ashkenazi tradition, France versus Germany, you have a, a clear understanding of who's supposed to say this final Kaddish. But our minhag, the German minhag actually makes sense given the following story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva saw a person who was naked and black as coal. He was carrying on his head a bundle 10 times normal weight and was running like a horse. Rabbi Akiva commanded him to stop and said, why are you doing such hard work? If you are a slave and your master is doing this to you, I will redeem you from him. And if you're a poor, I will make you rich. So Rabbi Akiva sees this person who's suffering and he wants to save him from the suffering. And he says, if you're a slave, I'll redeem you. If you're poor, I'll give you money. And the man said, please don't delay me. Perhaps those in charge of me will become angered. Rabbi Akiva said, what is this and what do you do? Rabbi Kiva doesn't understand his answer, so he's trying to figure out what's going on. He said, Oto ha'ish meitu. That man, that is to say me, I am dead. Every day they send me to cut down wood and they burn me with it. So this is like a picture of, again, something that we don't often associate with Jewish practice, but a sort of purgatory um, or, or more like literally sort of burning in the afterlife and a sort of hellish like existence that this person is suffering in. Rabbi Akiva said, what was your work in the world you came from, i.e. when you were alive? What did you do? What, what, what punishment are you living out because of your behavior? He said, I was a tax collector and I was among the leaders of the people. I would favor the rich and send the poor to their debt. Aha, so we see that he is a, a bad dude. He was favoring the, the rich and sending the poor 
to their death, presumably um, without any reason. In other versions of this story, he says that he had sex with an engaged woman on Yom Kippur. So this is like a, let's come up with the worst sin that we could ever imagine and pile it on. This is what this guy is, okay? So before we have too much Rahmanas for him, you should know that in this world, he was making other people suffer and really violating the, um, the laws of ethics and, and, and Jewish ritual. Rabbi Kiva said to him, apparently not, not phased, he said, have you heard from those in charge of you if there is a repair? The people who are managing your stay in hell, have you heard from them if there's anything that can be done to, to relieve you? He said, please don't delay me. Perhaps those in charge of me will become angered for I have no repair. However, I heard from them something which cannot be. If I had a son who were to stand in the congregation and say, the Omer, Baruch et Adonai Hamvorach, and they would answer after him, Vonina Harav, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, Leolam Ba'ed. So if I had a son who were to stand in front of the congregation and say, Blessed be God, who is blessed, the normal call to prayer, and they would answer after him, Blessed is uh, Hashem forever and ever, which probably is the Birkata Torah, although it's not totally clear from the context. We associate that with like the before Birkot Kriyachma, but could easily be Birkata Torah. Or if he said, O Yomar Yitgadal, Ve'onina Harav Raba Or if he, if the son that I presumably may or may not have, if he were to say Yitgadal and they answered after him, May his great name be blessed. Then Then immediately they would release me from punishment. Okay, so there's nothing that can help me. It's impossible for me to get out of this. But if I could uh, have a son and they were to say these things, then uh, it could be a little bit different. He said, but I did not leave a son in this world. I in fact, this is the solution, but it's, it's not something that applies to me because I did not leave a son in this world. I left my wife pregnant and I don't know if she gave birth to a son. And who would teach him anyways? For I don't have any friends in the world. Okay, so this, this man says, there's in theory this um, solution, but I can't even say if I had a son. Yes, I had a wife. Yes, she was pregnant. But even if she had a, a, you know, a son, I'm not sure that anyone's going to teach him because fundamentally nobody liked me because I was a horrible person. In that moment, Rabbi Akiva took it upon himself to go and investigate if he had a son so that he could teach him Torah and stand him before the congregation. Um, That's the idea. Rabbi Akiva wants to teach this son Torah and have him lead the congregation in prayer. Rabbi Akiva, now they're still having this, this is a sort of an interpolated part of the story, but Rabbi Akiva has this continued dialogue with the man in order to find his son. Rabbi Akiva said, what is your name? He said, Akiva, this is kind of crazy. It's like, you know, and the man is me. It was, you know, by Avek Ishimo. So it's not clear exactly what it means. This is not an all version of the story that the man who is dead is also named Akiva, not a particularly common name, but nevertheless, that's his name. And the name of your wife, her name is Shushniba. And the name of your city is Laodicea, which is apparently in Turkey. So immediately Rabbi Akiva felt a great sorrow and went and asked after this person. When he came to that place, he actually goes to, he's investigating now and he goes to the place where this man and his family lived. He asked after the man, he asked after him, what, where, what can you tell me about this person? They said, 
The bones of that wicked one should be silent. In other words, we want nothing to do with this guy, right? Forget about him. He should, he should burn in hell. He asked after his wife. They said, may her memory be away erased from the world. She too. Forget her. He asked after his son. They said, he is uncircumcised. Even the, mix, the mitzvah of circumcision we didn't do. Now that's kind of amazing because in a world in which there is an orphan, it's actually the responsibility of the Jewish community to circumcise the child and raise him in a Jewish environment. And they were saying, even that mitzvah we didn't do, he's an uncircumcised kid, we have nothing to do with this family, absolutely. Okay, so what happens? Immediately Rabbi Akiva took him, circumcised him, and sat him before him. He didn't receive Torah until Rabbi Akiva fasted for 40 days. Okay, Akiva's, Rabbi Akiva's trying to teach this boy and he's not willing to learn because he's not set up for that. And Rabbi Akiva fasts for 40 days and then it starts to break through. A heavenly voice emerged and said, Rabbi Akiva, go and teach him. He went and taught him Torah, Kriyat Shema, the Amidah, and Birkat Amazon. Halach ulamdo Torah, Kriyat Shema, Ve'yudchet Brachot, Shmonasre Brachot, Ubirkat Amazon. All of the, I would say, basic, you know, literacy stuff of, uh, of, a, of a Jewish boy, a Jewish kid. He stood him before the congregation and said, V'amar, Baruch Hu Atadonai Hamvorach, V'anu HaKahal, Baruch Atadonai Hamvorach Le'olam V'ed, Yitgadal Yeheshmei Rabbah, which is like a ellipsized version of, he did Yitgadal, and then everyone responded, Yeheshmei Rabbah. At that moment, they immediately released him from punishment. Okay, people are asking about the 40 days before teaching Torah. Is this a reference to Sinai? That's a great question, Jill, which is, um, there's a lot of, in other Midrashim, a lot of connections between Moshe and Rabbi Akiva. Um, many people know the famous one where Moshe ends up in Rabbi Akiva's classroom. There are other ones as well. So it could be that 40 days, of, you know, 40 days also Moshe didn't, uh, didn't eat and drink. And that's the receiving of Torah. So perhaps that's related. Wouldn't, wouldn't be surprising. Um, someone suggesting that Laodicea, Gila suggesting is an center of, uh, early center of Christianity. Hmm. There is, uh, there is some scholarship on this. David Shaiovitz, um, uh, who's a professor at Northwestern, wrote a, uh, an article just a few years ago on the connection between Christianity's interest in purgatory and the mourner's Kaddish being uh, functioning in this way. Um, other scholarship takes some issue with that, but there's, there's something definitely floating around with Christianity. As I said, originally the, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Shimcha. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, so there's a lot of linguistic connections, even dating back to early Christianity. At that moment, they re immediately released him from, from punishment. Uh, immediately, he came to Rabbi Akiva in a dream and said, may it be God's will that your mind be at ease in Gan Eden, for you saved me from the punishment of hell. Immediately, Rabbi Akiva said, so then we find the end of the story. So Orzarua finishes and says, thus we learn from my teacher that a katan, a minor, who um, says Yidgadal, uh, saves his father from punishment. Okay, and this is the, again, the sort of, core story that's referenced in most traditional literature as the source of Mourner's Kaddish. Now, if you're taking the attribution literally, it goes back to Rabbi Akiva. 
this is something that's very old. But again, as a mourner's prayer, it really only emerges in the, in the Middle Ages. So what can we um, derive from this story? In what context does the mourner's Kaddish play in this larger narrative? What is it standing in for? What is, if I were to say to you, what's the essence of the mourner's Kaddish here? What might you respond? David Brodsky, um, who's a scholar, I forget where, where he's based, uh, just published an article a couple of years ago where he makes the claim that this idea that a child can impact his parents' fate after death is something that is unique to the Babylonian Talmud and that whole um, ilk. He actually connects it to some uh, Zoroastrian uh, traditions as well, and specifically a minor, um, that is to say, he, he brings these texts that say that a child under the age of 15 has the power to, um, to impact uh, the, the fate of their deceased parents. And there may be other sort of uh, you know, precedents to this idea, even if the mourner's Kaddish is something that only emerged liturgically later on. So this is a story about Rabbi Akiva working with a child of a guy who was the worst guy in the world. And you know, raising him up to yeah. be a certain kind of Jew, um, as opposed to just recite this magical prayer in so, front of other people. Now that also happens, but I'm wondering what else we can take from narrative that uh, sort of might help us essentialize what is this act that we're doing when we say the mourner's cottage? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure this answers your question. I think that, um, I mean, it's disturbing on some level that we're putting our parents on the level of this guy. You know, that you know, as it says, somebody so terrible, you know, do our parents need that? I think that's one of the explanations why we say we say cottage for 11 months and not 12 and all that, right. but, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I would say that this is actually in a different context. We could use this text to think about how do we say, how do we think about saying cottage for a parent that we've had a difficult relationship with? This guy was not only a bad guy to other people, but he also was a horrible father and, you know, abandoned his wife, you know, before she gave birth. Um, and so there's that aspect as, as well, which is to say that in some ways, I'm getting back to what Mark was saying, in some ways, the life of the child is in contrast to the life of the, of the father. And uh, in that way um, is indeed helping the father uh, be redeemed from punishment, but also is sort of getting back on track in a world in which things have gotten off track um, in a very uh, serious way. I'm not sure that the Gemara is as concerned about the father as it is about the son. Um, in terms of Kaddish as liturgy coming out from this story, um, because of the settings where Kaddish is set, where, where verses from Kaddish come from, which we don't see in this story, but we see a child who has terrible circumstances. And... Um, He's, he's really in a place of, of godlessness and a life of despair. And um, he ends up saying, Yehei Shimei, right? Like we say for a mourner, when there's, there's a whole context for the mourner standing and saying, saying it, that is akin to the context of, of many of the verses of Kaddish, that it's coming from a place that is not good and somebody comes up and comes out of that and yet finds the capacity in community to praise the name of God. So it's redemptive, yes, for the father, but I think the point is that um, it's redemptive because of what is happening in the son and because what that does for the world is, is very broadly redemptive. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Betsy. And I, and I think that um, it sort of uh, piggybacks on, on what Jill's commenting as well, which is there's some parallel that's happening here where the child is being brought to life, i.e. the life of living Torah and mitzvot. And in some ways, the father gets, gets life through that uh, living as well. Um, but it's really the child is, is the focus here of getting back on, on track. Um, and what do we do to sort of um, continue the life that we should have been living or that he should have been living? Uh, and now we have the opportunity to sort of press the reset button in some way. Joel, are you raising your hand? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I just, I want to build on that. I think it's even a step further than just getting back on track. This is someone who's leading the Kahal. He's getting the Kahal to respond. You know, Baruch Hashem, right? So this is not just someone who's now like a good Jew, but someone who is like, I mean, they're young and there's a whole thing to maybe to play out why they have to be young. Um, maybe that's the only chance and so forth, but that they are not just like on track, they're leading the charge in some ways, the hefech of what their parent was. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's good to point out. They are, they, no one could have predicted that this kid would be a Jewish leader, you know, even for the moment of leading services, but the idea of getting other people to respond to him, this was a community that had completely rejected him. They wouldn't even circumcise him. You know, they had, they had thrown a, a pox on your house and your parents and everything. And now here he is, and not only are they accepting him, they're actually, um, they're being led by him. And it's an amazing redemptive story, the, the, the sort of the possibility of what, what someone um, can do, despite what their parents might have set them up to, you know, uh, to not do. Erwin, you're, you're raising your hand, go ahead. So very quickly, I, building on what everybody has said, I actually think this is a powerful story of tshuva, that, that in essence, the, uh, the present is not determined by the past. And more than that, that the acts that we do in the present can redeem the past. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's oh. right. It's, no one could have ever imagined this kind of turnaround. And in that way, actually, it's a great metaphor for tshuva um, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't otherwise think, you know, tshuva for things it's like you're basically good, but you're doing some tshuva for some things, cleaning up around the edges. This is like, oh my gosh, we, you know, this is the worst possible person. And this is a, a redemption story um, in a very intense way. I also want to just move on to the next text to see uh, a, another version of this story. It, it will help us maybe just essentialize what we're talking about here and, and add to that. Okay, now, uh, uh, one of the scholars in Israel, um, Membet Lerner, wrote a, wrote a long article on this story. Um, and he claimed that the following text was the oldest version of it. Other people, because it's scholarship, now claim that other texts are the oldest version of it. But suffice it to say that this is one of the old versions of this. Let's look at it for, for one second. Here it's not Rabbi Akiva, it's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, one time I was walking along the path, I met a person who's collecting wood. I said hello to him, but he didn't say hello to me. I said to him, are you among the living? He said to me, that man, i.e. me, I am among the dead. I said to him, if you are dead, why are you collecting wood? He said to me, listen to me about something. When I was in that world of the living, my friend and I would busy ourselves with robbery. Death by fire was decreed on me. When I gather the wood, they burn me. And when he gathers the wood, they burn him. Okay, so this is, he's in there with a buddy and this time he's a robber and he's sort of living out a punishment that he was supposed to get once, but he's living it out in perpetuity. Um, I said to him, how long is your punishment? He said to me, Rabbi, when I came here, I left my wife pregnant, and now I don't know if she had a girl or a boy. Now, this is where the manuscript tears. This is a Geniza fragment. 
but let's just read on. If, if for five years you bring him to the synagogue and teach him the Amida and the Shema and teach him three verses, and he ascends and reads from the Sefer Torah, and the congregation answers after him, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, then I will be released from this judgment. Immediately, Rabbi Yochanan did this. After Rabbi Yochanan found the man in the same place he had run into him before, he said to him, let your soul rest just as you caused me and my soul to rest. I have been released from the judgment. Immediately, Rabbi Yochanan opened with the verse and said, Adonai Shimcha Le'olam. So here, again, you have a, um, a, a different version of the story where the idea of Kaddish isn't mentioned at all. Okay, it's just not there. Yitgadal and Yeheshmei Rab is not there at all. And here it's clear the Baruch Vorach seems to be about reading the Torah, um, where again, the, like, the focus of what it means to respond to a parent's death in these stories is you take on a life of study. Maybe even it's, it's as well prayer, and it is in public. You are going to the synagogue, but there is sort of a life and form of behavior that's being played out here, as opposed to, again, the way we often come to think of the Kaddish is, this is a liturgical text that I must recite that is maybe divorced from anything else I do, like during the day or in my own character. It is just something I need to recite in public. And what these stories I'm arguing are bringing is, no, it's not, it's not limited to reciting something in public. It is reciting something in public, but it's really just sort of like a, a capstone for a life that is devoted to living a certain way. Um, now, again, in our moment, I'm wondering if there's a possibility of saying, I'm not saying you're excused from saying the Kaddish, and of course that there was a minion opportunity that would happen, but it's not a zero-sum game on, can you say this text or can you not say this text? It is a stand-in, I think, for a larger approach of how am I holding myself in the world, what are my commitments, and how am I um, thinking about that? Right, so a couple of people are asking, so does that mean only the wicked need Kaddish to be said for them? I think this is where, again, Jeff was saying earlier, this is where some of the hedging on Kaddish is out there because you say Kaddish for too long, you know, you're uh, presuming that your, uh, your parent needed this Kaddish. Um, and so I think it's a little bit of a, uh, well, you never know, and maybe we're cleaning up around the edges and it's some form of, it became some form of respecting the dead, irrespective of their own behavior. But again, when it started off, I would say, yeah, it was dependent on, it was a form of, of kapara um, for, the, for the dead. And is that something that, you know, that everybody needs? Um, Brad is saying, what about the role of the teacher? Does this teach us about her, uh, heroic mentoring? I think you're right. There's an amazing reaction. Talk about open-minded. Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai are not like, oh, oh, you're that guy who was a horrible man? Oh, forget it. I'm out of here. No wonder you're being punished. See you later. They're like, immediately, I'm going to solve this problem. And I think getting back to the tshuva theme, they are willing to live in a world in which tshuva is possible, and they're actually um, facilitating that tshuva, um, as opposed to just leaving these people to, you know, get what they deserve uh, in the in the suffering afterlife. Okay, I'm gonna open it up again for if anybody has any further thoughts about the um, the story, and then what we're gonna do is I'm gonna turn to some other texts that were recited in the Middle Ages when you couldn't get a minion around Kaddish. We'll see what those were made up of and what they're referring to. And maybe actually go back to some of the themes that Betsy was talking about, about what, what we mean when we say Yehishmei Rabbah, um, and how could that play in, into this? Okay, so Lawrence is saying, if the recitation of Kaddish is not a zero-sum game, uh, I'm wondering if it's not possible to assemble a minion, would it suffice for the mourner to say, El Malay Rachamim? Right, again, 
what is the liturgical text that you could say when you don't have a minion? As we'll see, there are some texts that already were emerging in the Middle Ages. I've seen some of them floating around the internet. But yeah, it opens up a possibility of other texts to be recited. And what I'm even saying beyond that is, it opens up the, the like, let's remember what this is all about, which is living a life of Torah and committing to something as opposed to a zero-sum game on any liturgical text that you might recite. Ellie, um, it seems to me that the Yochanan ben Zakkai story, it's much simpler. It doesn't have all these elements of a long trip to a Christian place, but the Akiva story suggests to me how bad can this situation be and how much can Rabbi Akiva, and then perhaps by, ex by extension, how much can a Jewish community raise up someone who is so distant and whose father was so distant and yet achieve what you said before, the, the tshuva that's suggested? Yeah, right. It, it is. It, it, actually, it both represents the, it's like both ends of that extreme. Because remember, the community members of this, you know, in, in Laodicea, they were like, forget it. These people are way off the reservation. Forget them entirely. We wash our hands of them completely. Even this baby who is not even eight days old, we're not going to circumcise and That's how far we're moving from this. And Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yochanan, and Ben Zakkai are like the opposite extreme, which is there's no limits to the ways in which we're going to, you know, take on this project and bring someone back uh, into the fold. She was saying, I wonder if along with Kapara and Chuva, the connection of people whose parents are not terrible, is more about existential meaning making in the wake of the death of a loved one, legacy, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think part of what we're gonna see in some of these later texts are, well, let's say you can't get to a minion. Um, maybe there's something else that represents living the legacy of your parent that you wanna focus on. Um, something that, that actually calls to mind their values and ethics. Again, in our story, it's like the anti you know, you take everything the, the father was and you do the opposite of it, and that, now you're in good shape. But if, in a world in which that's not the model of the parent, could you take on something that was particular to that parent's value set and say, this is really what I'm going to, um, you know, to focus on and press the gas on, again, going beyond a liturgical recitation. Um, okay, so let's, let's take so, a, a look at some of those other texts and let's see what we can learn about these other possibilities. Okay, first of all, I just brought you some other text from, from earlier rabbinic literature that is about living a certain life and that itself has some kapara powers for the parents. You see the Breshit Rabbah text number four. Um, if you have a son who do, who's you know toiling in the Torah, who's living out a life of Torah, it is as if he hasn't died. Now that's not the same as rescued from punishment in death, but there's some sort of, you live on through the behavior of your children and Torah as the way of life is something in which that's sort of represented. Let's look at Sefer Hasidim. Um, Sefer Hasidim is supposedly written by Rabbi Yudah Hasid, one of the German, uh, Hasidei Ashkenaz, German pietists, um, uh, Middle Ages, 12th century. and and. He is raising the possibility of, again, not our situation exactly, but uh, a, a place in which you're structurally unable to get to a minion. So I'm at number six. Adam shehudar bikfar ve'en imo asara lomar davar shebikidusha. If a person lives in a village and he doesn't have a minion to say, 
Dvarim Shebikdusha, matters of holiness, all the things that um, we require a minion for. As, as an aside, by the way, that list appears in, in, uh, in Mishnah Megillah, and, and um, strikingly absent is the Kaddish, um, as well as uh, Kedusha. Those, those actually don't appear on the list until after um, the close of the Talmud, which is just a, a fascinating um, historical event. But certainly by Hasidic Ashkenaz times, th- those appeared on the list. And remember, Kaddish as a liturgical text, the Mourner's Kaddish is really the latest version of that, but other people were saying Kaddish after uh, a period of study, like for instance, um, the Torah reading, the Kaddish after the Torah reading is probably maybe the original locus of the Kaddish. That is to say it was a capstone that followed um, a, a piece of study. So again, Kaddish as, and you think of your Korah Torah also as essentially a liturgical um, wrapping around a piece of study. So we're talking about study as the main um, sort of enterprise here and a liturgical recitation after that. Now, a person who lives in a village also can't, you know, hear the Torah read, et cetera, at least in a, in a minion. We're asking questions about what happens when what about the relationships here? If you don't have if people who don't have children, what if you have a daughter, not a son? What, you know, what if someone else dies um, who's, who's not your parent and they don't have someone else to say, um, say Kaddish for them? All these things get played out in later halachic pieces. But you can see the original was just simply the basic unit of parent-child um, and how that plays out. Okay, so this is what Sefer Hasidim says. Either you're living in a place where you structurally are unable to say things but maybe you do live in a place where there is a, a congregation, and this never happens. So maybe you just showed up late to shul. What are you supposed to do? Yomar, and now this is the recommendation from Sefer Hasidim, three verses. That's all it is. Three verses. You know you can just say a verse whenever you want. It doesn't require a minion. Um, which actually is a, a verse that, that comes from the scene in the Midbar in which um, Moshe is asking forgiveness after the sin of the spies. And that text, is an interesting text that um, we don't recognize liturgically that, uh, that much anymore, but was often a text that was said um, for instance, during Baruchu, during the call to prayer, there was like a, a set of liturgical um, uh, words that were said by the congregation as the leader was saying a long, drawn-out Baruchu. And this is one of the texts that is, um, is recited there. So it has something to do with transitional place in the davening and Be'atai Dalnakoach. Obviously, Yidgadal is part of what they're playing with here. So you're looking for something that's trying to connect to the Text you can't say, but here's a verse that's like it. Again, a tshuva moment, a, a forgiveness moment after the sin of the spies. This is a second verse that's from the vision of Yechezkel. And this is actually the, the source of Yitkadal v'yitkadash. Um, so Yitkadal v'yitkadash, you can see, is um, just taken from this prophecy from Yechezkel, which we're going to look at in, in a moment to see what the context of that is. I think it actually has to do with what are we doing when we say the Kaddish, besides living out a life of Torah? What are we actually, um, liturgically, what are we praising or asking for? And the last text is, Yehishem Adonai Mevorach Olam, right? Which is, Yehishem Adonai Mevorach Olam Basically, but in Hebrew. 
um, which is just taken from, from Psalms. So already you have in the, in the Middle Ages, again, this is not, to be clear, this is not about mourner's Kaddish. Mm-hmm. This is just about a Kaddish, which is already known. The Kaddish as a prayer is already known, and the Gemara is mentioned about five or six times in the Bavli. It's known as a prayer. It's not known as a mourner's prayer. This was a recommendation of if you missed Yeheshmei Rabbah Mivorach, um, because either you don't have a minion or you got late to shows, probably the, the, this My is the, 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 the solution for how you get around that. And there is something, in other words, there was a desire to say something. There was a desire to fill a liturgical gap and they wanted to say something. And even if they couldn't say it because they don't have a minion, they had another choice, which was these three psukim, okay? Yeah. Someone tried to say something, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say that I mean, it surprised me in the sense that even if they didn't have the mourner's Kaddish that was, you know, at the end of services, that at least our understanding of the structure of, of, of Tefillot is that there's a Kaddish, you know, t- uh, towards the end, just before Aleinu. Uh, so to, to come late and miss Kaddish is to miss all, you know, as opposed to like, you know, there's also a, a mourner's Kaddish, another, you know, in, in uh, Psukit Zimra, and that's a whole different matter. But uh, but to say you, you missed uh, Kaddish when, when Kaddish comes, you know, before Elenu, that seems a lot. <laughs> yes, this is the, the origin of JFK, just for Kiddush, but maybe just for Kaddish. The question Mark is asking, how did it evolve that the Aramaic phrase, Yehishmei Rabbah, has more halachic power than verses from the Tanakh? It's a great question because you would think that Tanakh actually like trumps any, any sort of later liturgy. But this is one of the strange things about verses are always permitted to be recited. Um, and have no liturgical, liturgical limit on them in terms of a minion. Uh, reading from a scroll does, but, um, um, but not uh, just reciting a pasuk, which, you know, even children were doing all the time in the ancient world, no stories, you know, so tell me what verse you're saying. Kids could just spit out verses. Um, but Yehishmei Rabbah actually is something that evolved, not in the time of the Talmud, but evolved into something like Kedusha, like Baruch that you need a minion for. And so, um, it was one of those strange things that even though it's in Aramaic and, and, and is later than the Tanakh, is something that you um, would nevertheless be able to say on your own. Okay, I want to show you one other, one other version of uh, what was said in the Middle Ages when they couldn't say this with a Kaddish. Okay, so Sefer Rokeach, Sefer Rokeach is uh, Rabbi Eliezer of, of Worms, who is the student of Rabbi Yudah Hasid. So same time period, same place, maybe uh, half a generation later. Uh, he learns with the author of Sefer Hasidim. So he has a longer section in his uh, Sefer Arokeach, which is a, a large, large book of halachot, um, often quoted in Shulchan Aruch. Um, and he says, Yachid she'eno bebeir ha-Knesset l'barchu yomar bebraita zo besifret. Okay, if you're not in Shul for Barchu, say the following rabbinic text. And then I, say, I cut it out for, uh, for space reasons. Um, and if you're missing for Liyeh Shmei Rabbah, you say the following story. Amar Rabbi Yossi, Pamacharaiti Once I was walk, walking along the path. Now we're going to see what that is in a minute, but I'm just saying to you that unlike the Sefer Hasidim was saying, say these three verses, actually very short, very doable. Sefer Arokeach was like, ah, if you miss these things, I'm going to give you rabbinic texts to recite as opposed to Tanakh texts. And I'm going to spell them out as um, sort of thematically related to um, what, the, what the things that you're missing are. And he actually brings you three versions of, the, of what you should say for Yehoshmei Rabbah. 
the second one. This is a quote from the um, from Brachot in the in the Gemara, which says Rabbi Shubin Levi says, if you say with all your koach, then you rip up your gzardin. If you say it with all your power, either that means really loudly. Sometimes you hear people like screaming. Rabba. I had a teacher who screams it, always gets people to turn their head. Or, you know, with like all your kavana. But Yehishmei Rabba is sort of the essence. If you do it, you rip up your gzardin, you rip up your uh, decree. And this might be sort of a clue in how the Kaddish, as a mourner's prayer, got associated with saving someone from their gzardin. This is about your gzardin, but saving someone else from their gzardin. Okay? And the, the last Yehishmei Rabba. Um, you have other, other texts that were said, um, again, from rabbinic literature around that. Okay, what I want to do is look at the source of some of these texts that are being uh, suggested as a way of, again, framing what the Kaddish could be. And then we're going to end with some more modern uh, chuvot where the Kaddish got so off the rails that people felt like they needed to write a chuvot that said, listen, you can't just show up and say Kaddish and be a terrible person the rest of the day. You got to actually like, Remember what this is all about. So our two remaining texts are what are the sort of the context of some of these liturgical texts that were recited instead of saying Kaddish itself? And how might that help us understand, again, what's the essence of Kaddish that we want to bring with us, even if we can't say it? And then we'll look at um, some advice from, from later authorities in, in the modern period about what happens when you, can't, when you are saying Kaddish, but you're missing the point, uh, which is sort of the opposite of where we want to arrive at now. You can't say Kaddish, but let's at least get the point of how you should be in the world. Okay, so the first is just the context for Vahit Kadilti Vahit Kadishti, the prophecy of, of Yechezkel, um, in which uh, the Yitgadal Vahit is based. In other words, it's the only place where Yitgadal Vahit Kadash, Yitgadilti Vahit Kadishti, just li- linguistically are connected from the Tanakh into the Sidur. Uh, you'll also recognize it. Uh, well, okay, let's read it, and then I'll, I'll tell you the other place where you'll recognize it from in the Sidur. Um, on that day, when Gog sets fo- foot on the soil of Israel, declares the Lord God, my raging anger shall flare up. This is the vision of Gog, the final battle at the end of time versus Gog and Magog, the, the folks who bring you the English word Armageddon. And this is uh, the, the end of that prophecy that Ezekiel is putting out there. For I have decreed in my indignation and my blazing wrath on that day, a terrible earthquake shall befall the land of Israel. Fish of the sea, birds of the sky, beasts of the field, all creeping things that move on the ground, and every human being on earth shall quake before me. Mountains shall be overthrown, cliffs shall topple, every wall shall crumble to the ground. I will then summon the sword against him throughout my mountains, declares Lord God, and every man's sword shall be turned against his brother. I will punish him with pestilence and with bloodshed, a poor torrential rain, hailstones, sulfurous fire upon him and his hordes and the many peoples with him. And then the kicker, Thus will I manifest my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, this is the Pasuk again that Sefer Chassidim recommends, one of the three Pasukim that Sefer Chassidim recommends that we say if we can't say the Kaddish because we live in a village or because we can't get to Minyan, we miss Minyan. And to be clear, this is... <laughs> This is, those of you who have learned the consciously elsewhere, you've heard me say this. This is not 
a praise of God, but it is a request that God is making of God's self in that may I become great, may I become holy. In that moment, then I will be known to many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. That is to say, right now, is God holy? Is God great? Well, not exactly. <laughs> that is to say, this is something that will happen at the end of time after this major war and battle. Um, and only then when everybody knows God and everybody is recognizing that Ani Hashem, then I will, be ha I will have been made great and I will have been made holy. And a good sort of proof text of that orientation around these words is the other liturgical place that you know these words from, which is um, Kedusha and Shachari, right? When we say, Tit Gadal v'tit Gadash, Right? Our eyes will see the coming of the kingdom of the Lord, of your kingdom. Is not, you are great and you are holy. You are not yet great. You're not yet holy in Rather, it's a request in order for that to happen. Okay, so the, the main thing about the Kaddish to remember is it is not a praise. It is a request. And this is the, uh, the sort of clue to that happening. Um, okay, so David says, seems to be for the benefit of the other nations more than for us. Right, I think this, it's a good point, which is to say that, is God king right now? <laughs> seems like for us, God is king. And yet, is God king? And the Kaddish doesn't mean, and your kingship is, is going great. It means, may you be ruling as a king. And I think that is oriented to the people who are not yet recognizing that God is king. And so in that world, in that way, we're actually living in a world in which things are not great. Because if things were great, everyone would recognize God as king. We'd be at the end of, of time and everything would be wonderful. So I think, this is actually getting back to Betsy's comment, when you're thinking about what it means to have uh, Kaddish as a, a text that is said by mourners, my point on that is, it's not about praising God who is, you know, worthy of praise in the middle of my suffering. It's about actually asking for God to become great and holy in a world that's terrible and isn't there yet. And everybody doesn't recognize God as king yet, but that's something that we're hoping for and that, um, that we're praying for. And that's part of the Gadildi, the Gadishti, the Gadavi Gadash, may this be, the Amlich Malchute, may this be. May this happen in your city. It's not yet happening yet, right? And Brandon said, yes, isn't this the awful show of power, how God makes God's self known in Egypt? Exactly. The whole point of God plagues in Egypt was that everyone should know God. And that ultimately happens. In the beginning, Pharaoh says, I've never heard of God. I, never, I didn't know him. But now I know him. Uh, I know God. Yeah, and she was saying, yes, it speaks to uh, the feeling of crisis in the world. And I think that that's, that's exactly it. The Kaddish, I think you could think of the Kaddish and what, whichever liturgical text you're saying, whether you're saying the source quote, as Sefer Hasidim recommends when you can't say it in a minion, or you're saying actual Kaddish, it is not a praise of God and everything is, you know, supposed to be fine, even though I'm suffering. It is a major request in which I'm asking for God to be made great and be made uh, manifest in this world. Okay, I'm going to open it up for anybody who wants to just uh, comment there. Then we're going to go back to the story of Rabbi Yossi. 
um, and then and then look at the recommendations from the the modern folks. Anybody want to jump in? This is Brandon. I guess one thought that I'm having is. When I think of God, both, uh, you know, I'm inclined towards sometimes the Kabbalistic and the, the mystical, but also even just looking rabbinically, it's very clear that God is known to have, at the very least, a leaning towards Dean and judgment and power, Gvura, and that leaning towards Chesed. And so I'm wondering if part of it is like, you become known through the Dean, through the Gvura, but part of knowing you is knowing that you're more than that. And that's the chesed, and that's the rachamim. And therefore, after those shows of power, that's when the moments of tshuva and redemption comes. That's when reciting this, we want you to show your power because on the other side of that dean is the rachamim that you will bestow upon us and upon all of us for our parents' souls, for us in life, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Actually, it reminds me of a Kabbalistic read of the Kaddish in which the Yehei Shmei Rabbah, the way that that is read, not only Kabbalist, but is that Shmei, Shin Mem Yud Hei, is Shem Ya. And Yehei, may Shem Ya be Rabba. May it be great, i.e., may it, instead of being Ya, just Yud Hei, Yad Al Kes Ya, right? It should be Yud Hei Vavi. It should be the full name of God, God's full mercy. And that's sort of the request that you're making when you say Yehei Shmei Rabba Mivarach. Um, it's not just about blessing God as is, but about asking for a full manifestation of the merciful God as represented by, um, by yud heh vav -Hey. I'm going to share the screen again, and we're going to look, look at the Rebbe Yossi text um, just to take this one step further, and then we'll look at the, the modern stuff. Sorry, just uh, um, in, in other versions of, of the source text for the Kaddish, although this is not recommended by Sefer Hasidim to say as a pasuk, maybe because it was a little bit obscure, but you can see in source number nine, um, the Yeheshme Rabbah as a text appears in Aramaic in the Aramaic section of, of Daniel. Now, Daniel is running away from certain death that's going to be meted out by Nebuchadnezzar, because if you could imagine a despot who is so irrational that he says, I want you to interpret my dream, but I'm not going to tell you what my dream is. Go ahead and interpret it. And if you can't, I'll kill you. And that's like the opening scene in Daniel. And Daniel as a dream interpreter is suddenly at risk. <laughs> it's really hard to interpret someone's dream when they don't tell it to you. Um, so he gathers up his friends and they're, um, they're, they're trying to get away from the, the certain death that's being decreed on them. And Daniel prays and says, I'm in verse 20, Ane Daniel ve'amar, Right, which is exactly, basically, the only significant difference is God's name is in this quote, right? We have but may God's name be blessed from, you know, from now until eternity. Our text is missing the name of God. Even in the, the, the Psalms text that Sefer Hasidim recommended, our Yeheshme Rabbah is sort of striking in that it's missing the name of God. Okay, and I think that becomes a little bit clearer when we see this story from Rabbi Yossi. Okay, so I'm on number 10, Tanya uh, Amar Rabbi Yossi. Again, this is one of the texts that um, the Rokeach, the student of Sefer Hasidim, recommends that you say, if you can't say Kaddish, you'll see in a second, it's directly related to, uh, to Kaddish. I was one time walking on the, on the path, and I went into one of the ruins of Jerusalem in order to say Tfilah, in order to say the Amidah. 
Baliel zachur latov b'shamar liyal petachad shesiyam titfilati. Eliyahu, as it was possible back then, Eliyahu comes and guarded for me the the petach, the opening, until I finished my amida. And he says to me, the Amarli, Eliyahu says to Rabbi Yossi, b'sha'ashe Yisrael nichnasin l'batei knesiyot l'batei midrashot ve'onin yeishme agadol mevorach, or in some manuscripts, yeishme rabba mevorach, when Israel goes to the houses of study, houses of worship, and say, may God's great name be blessed, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Minaneh Roshu V'Omer, Ashrei HaMelech, Shemekalsino Toba V'Etokah, God says, God shakes God's heads and says, happy is the king who's praised thusly in his house. But then the text goes, in other words, you say Yesh Me Rabbah Mevorach, God is like, this is great. I love it when you say that to me. Uh, but the text doesn't end there. The text goes on and actually says, Malo Le'av, actually that's a highest edit by the Vilna Shas and all the other manuscripts. It's Oilo Le'av, Oilo Le'av, woe to the father, She'iglad Banav, V'oilaim Labanim She'galu Me'al Shulchan Avihim. Woe to the father who um, caused his children to be exiled and woe to the children who were exiled from the table of their father. Now, I think what's so powerful about the story of Rabbi Yossi as a source text or a substitute text in Sefer Arokeach is that Rabbi Yossi is, and this is the oldest text that we have in the Gemara about Yeheshme Rabbah, which is how they called uh, what we call Kaddish. Um, we have a story in which actually the world is pretty bad. You're living in a world in which Rabbi Yossi is wandering among the ruins of Jerusalem. He's davening by himself in a destroyed building. And in that davening, he hears the report from Eliyahu Anavi, who says there was a time when people used to gather and say, Yesh me Rabbah Mivorach, and God would, would really appreciate it, would look, nod God's head and say, happy is the king who's praised in this way. But we're not living in that time, in that time anymore. We're living in the ruins. Oilo, oilo la'av, woe to the father, and oilo am labanim, and woe to the children. Now, I think what's powerful about this, and, and later commentators play on this, is that we think that the mourner's Kaddish is about a mourner who is suffering and either, you know, stoically praising God or asking questions about God. How could this happen? Um, but in fact, this is a text in which both the mourner, who's the child, and the mourner, who's the parent, i.e. God, are in league together and mourning together. That is to say, Jerusalem is ruined both for the children and for the father. You're not in Jerusalem right now. You destroyed it. And so there's a, an element of um, parallelism, parallel mourning that takes place in this text that I think speaks to some extent, to the world in which we live in, certainly now, where God's name, God's presence is absent, you know, in a, in a very visible way. And we see God as sort of adopting, adopting a stance of, well, yes, I wish that I could be there, but I can't because of your behavior. Yeah, that depends on your theology, but at least that's one, one read of that story. But I'm suffering too. I'm suffering and and your suffering, we're all suffering in this world of destruction. Yeah, Mayor Feldman, is, this, is the reason we use Kaddish, the Kaddish text that's missing God's name because we're encouraged to believe that Kaddish 
is also about the name of our loved one who has passed, in addition to God's name. That is to say, there's an absence that's being felt on both levels, if I'm reading your comment correctly. There's an absence. Kaddish is about recognizing an absence in the world. There's the absence of your loved one, and there's an absence of God's name, which is so striking when you see the, the core source text that you should be saying in substitute for them where God's name is there. Yishem Adonai Mevorach, that's Avi Adolam. But, but, but God is absent from this prayer, and I think it does, it sort of mirrors that loss that the, the, you know, the human is feeling on the, on the ground. Someone asked, what is the Sidur at the very end if you have to run away? And I'll tell you that the, the scan from the Sidur in the end is Seder Avodat Israel, which was Zeligman Baer, uh, who is basically the standard German Orthodox Sidur, published in 1868 in Germany. Um, and we're going to get there in just a second. And I'll show you some of the more modern, I'm using modern in, in somewhat quotes, but let's see. Where did we get off the rails with Kaddish? And could this be a moment to get back on track with what Kaddish was meant to be doing for us? So Shnei Luchot Abrit, that's um, Isaiah Horowitz, who's in the uh, 16th century. He says, Ha'av Yitzavel Levanav Lachzik Be'ezo Mitzvah I'll just skip to the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, who's about 150 years later. Yes, these prayers help, but they are not the essential, they're not the ikar of what we're doing here. The ikar, the essence is that Children should act righteously. That's how they're actually going to give help to their, to their parents. The Yeshlo Adam, and this is taking the Shnei Lukona read and actually turning it into a recommendation. A person should command, A person should tell his child to do a certain mitzvah. That if you do it, it's even considered more worthy than saying Kaddish. That is to say, could we orient ourselves around a world in which the parent is instructing their child in a, this is a mitzvah that's important to me. I want you to do this mitzvah. Again, we have this world in which the mitzvah that we're carrying out is saying Kaddish, but you don't want to take away from that. But there is a world in which if all you're doing is that, then you're missing this wider opportunity to say, I want you to live out my legacy. And according to these sources, you know, that's even more valuable than saying Hadish. I'm going to just read one more here. Zibre Malkiel. Zibre Malkiel is a 19th century Posek in Poland. Meaning, if you have a financial loss about saying patur. If you have to like work really hard to get, get to Minyan, you're putter from saying Kaddish. Now, this is the only place that I've seen something that goes that far as to say that there's a financial association with the, with the ability to say Kaddish. If you can't meet it, you're not supposed to feel like you're obligated to say it. I bring in more to say there is a possibility in which there's a world in which certain circumstances make your putter from saying Kaddish. It's like, it's not a do or die thing. Now, I know it's what kept minions alive and keeps minions alive today. So I'm not, it would be horrible if we emerge from this crisis where everybody said, ah, good thing I don't have to ever go to minion again. Good thing I never have to say Kaddish. That's not my point. But my point is there are some moments in which there is a opportunity to say, you're Pater, as opposed to 
you know, you have to say it do or die, and we're going to sort of bend all the rules to make this seem like a minion when it's not. And uh, like the essence of the matter is people have now thought that the main thing is to lead davening and say Kaddish. And there are those who say as many Kaddishes as possible. You've been to those minions where at the end of, of the service, you know, Rosh Chodesh, you can say another time, you say another Kaddish, another Kaddish. But all day long, they're doing whatever they want to, separate from that. In other words, if I say my Kaddish is over and over again, carte blanche to just be the normal jerk that I am all day long. And he's saying, that's the wrong idea. Now, the main thing is to do a lot of Torah and good deeds and to stay away from forbidden things. And that's how a son, a bar, a child can be mizakeh, can be doing merit for his parent. Okay, so again, just to sort of keep us on the straight and narrow, there is... A, way, a world in which we forgot why we were saying why we were saying Kaddish, and now we're going to try to re, you know, recommit ourselves to the possibility that we have to be good people who are doing good deeds, and maybe even a specific mitzvah that our parents wanted us to do, and that's another way of sort of being true to the essence of Kaddish, as opposed to one in which we are only putting our eggs in the basket of a liturgical recitation. Um, without actually getting the bigger picture of what this is all about. And again, we're not the first you know, community in Jewish history to have made that imbalance uh, and holding that. Uh, these are voices that come, modern voices, but, but still not super recent, that are saying that Kaddish is more than just reciting something and you're missing the point if that's all it boils down to. Um, we have to recommit ourselves to the essence of what's going on here. Okay, I want to I want to just I'll open it up for one more moment if people had comments on that, and then I'm going to show you the the last few texts which I've seen floating around, and then I'll let you go back to your holy work. Emily, Emily, this is Lyle. Um, how do you factor in Agnon's prayer before the Kaddish into what you were saying about God's being, uh, God's asking that God be made great and recognized? I think he says something like that in that. Pre-Kaddish prayer. Sorry, which pre-Kaddish prayer? Agnon has a pre-Kaddish prayer about, right, human uh, leaders send people off to war, it doesn't matter, but God, Melech Malchem, Lachim worries about everyone, and God's name is diminished, and therefore you say, Yitkadal Yitkadash to restore God's name. Yeah, I, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a great text to bring into this. I should sort of roll it in as this is a, a developing uh, sheer. But I think there's, there is this, um, you know, this ongoing desire on, I would say, a substratum in, in rabbinic literature, which is to say that whatever kings do, God does the opposite. Right. And when you say, Melech Malchem you don't mean the most king, like take a king that we know and just like multiply it by 10, but it's the inverse of the king. It's the, you, you know, despots and, and rulers, and God is the opposite of that. And so that's a, that's a pretty good example where kings send people off to their death. But God, I mean, you see that in the story of the text of Rabbi Yossi, God is essentially a powerless mourner in that moment in, in which God is mourning the destruction of Jerusalem as opposed to building Jerusalem, which presumably would be in God's power.
but that's not the um, persona that God is adopting in that story. And that in some ways, I don't know if it's comforting or, or just sort of the reality of the situation of, you know, we're not alone in our mourning and God is here with us, even though we might want that superpower, Melech Lachem Lachim, to step in and do something. We're nevertheless not abandoned by a God who is also experiencing the state of the world in a state of, of mourning. It might also relate to what you've taught on other occasions about Avinu Malkenu and the Melech there, and God is a different kind of Melech. Yeah, that's right. Avinu Malkenu is, uh, is a great example of, uh, of us calling God a king, but not meaning king in the way that Americans don't like it. <laughs> Betsy's asking if I'm jumping into the Psaac. I'm not jumping into the Psaac. I started off by saying I'm not jumping into the Psaac question, although my colleagues, Ethan Tucker and Aviva Richmond are, are hopefully going to be working up something soon. But you can see if you scroll to the very beginning of this chat here, I, I brought you a couple other Psaac options that uh, are floating around in the last 12 hours, which is pretty, pretty amazing. The ability of uh, halacha creativity to be uh, put into overdrive has uh, been recognized recently. I saw this text from Seder of Amram Gaon, Kadish Liachid. This is a, a longer set of, uh, of texts that I saw floating around the internet. When I was looking at it in Seder of Amram Gaon, I did not see it. Um, this is the one that's on Bar Ilan, so it's definitely in some version of Seder of Amram Gaon, but in the critical edition put out by Daniel Goldschmidt in the in the 70s, um, it's not there, and I haven't figured out yet <laughs> where this came from, uh, but you can pretty much safely say that it is not Rav Amram Gon himself, that is to say the leader of, uh, of the Babylonian yeshiva in the ninth century. I don't think this is a text that he, uh, that he wrote. As, as you probably know, most of the texts in Seder of Amram Gon that are liturgical texts are not really attributable to, to Rav Amram himself because the Sidor was so popular that people wrote over it with their own local texts. And so you have really no idea how old the texts are in Seder of Amram Gaon. Um, so there's nothing, nothing wrong with this. Not a, it's not a bad text. You can see some of the sukim that we looked at before are here, but I wouldn't go around saying that it is Rav Amram Gaon is the one who is um, the author of that text. Let's see. And I just wanted to show you the, the last one. This is the, so this is the, the Zeligman Bear Sidur that I was talking about published in Germany, 1868, um, Seder Yisrael was one of the most popular Sidurim in Ashkenaz. Most of the American Sidurim were based on the text that were here. He has a sort of pseudo-academic commentary on it uh, underneath and it's very learned commentary. Um, so you can see here that um, uh, he has a whole bunch of texts that you should say, like, Zeomer ani bimkom chatsi kadish, kodem bar chushal shachari. This is all the things that you would do if you were missing, missing davening or davening on your own, these set of sukim um, that he brings you. Unfortunately, um, in, the, in the bear uh, sidur, he doesn't actually um, give you any commentary on any of these, but you can see, ze omer ani bimkom kadish shalem. He does not give you one for mourners kaddish. Um, and you can see that, you know, we have some of the text that we saw before. That's the one from Sefer Chassidim. Also, um, that's uh, uh, from, from Psalm 104 that we did not see in Sefer Chassidim, but you have the word Gadol. That's the one from Daniel. Um, and then you have the text from Rabbi Yeshua and Levi. So he's sort of mixing and matching some of the stuff from Sefer Okeach, Sefer Chassidim. And as, the, as is the way with liturgical texts, they usually only grow and don't shrink. 
Um, so this is an example of that growing, that kind of text growing. Um, so I don't know where he got these texts uh, from. In other words, there's some jump that happens from Sefer Hasidim in the 12th century to the 19th century German Sidur that we're looking at here. Um, but it is, it is nevertheless uh, something that is in that uh, tradition that we saw. I'm going to open it up for any other final comments uh, before we end our learning time together. I just want to say, maybe I'm trying to make things fit too cleanly, but after, not the Sidur examples, but some of those last texts and looking at them in conversation with the medieval texts, um, there's almost a sense that the ideal or preferred way to honor one's parent is, as we said, to sort of to do good deeds and to perhaps perform specific mitzvot. But in the case where your parent was unengaged in Jewish life, and not involved in good deeds, and therefore wouldn't have specific mitzvot to say, hold these dear to you. In that case, you should go and be a prayer leader and be able to recite Baruch Hu and Kaddish and all of these prayers and all this learning in the hopes that in engaging in this life, all of Torah will become dear to you and you'll be able to give on more specifics. Like it, I'm seeing both a, a connection between making God's name great and known, and also our own engagement in Jewish life becoming great and known. And so it's just an interesting way of thinking of it, of reciting Kaddish is almost, it's not the default one, but it's actually sort of like, this is what should be done for people who are the least engaged to get them more engaged. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think also the, the, in, that, in that story, you know, Rabbi Akiva or Rabbi Yochanan Betzakai, they become the father figure. I mean, Rabbi Akiva really, circumcises the child, teaches the child, is in some ways the stand-in parent. And when we don't have an option of our own parent being that role model for us, then I would say, sort of version of what you're saying, what teacher, you know, a Selah Harav, can you sort of adopt a teacher, you know, Horah, a parent, and a Morez, a teacher is the same root, all from Torah, you know, in what, in what way could you work that out for yourself such that, yes, you're becoming the kind of person that you should be, with the guidance that you need, whether that's the biological parent or the, or the adopted teacher. To end uh, for myself, I'm gonna turn it over to Morning for one final announcement. Uh, it's been very, very trying times and to see all of your faces is really a big salve for me. To be able to study Torah with you is really energizing and um, is a bracha. And my, my hope is that the learning that we do today and that we've done the past few days and that we will be doing going forward um, you know, really reinforces the world that we want to build together and that we're able to take this moment of crisis, especially around Kaddish, and turn it into something that uh, allows us to commit to the world that we want to live in. So uh, thank you to the time, for all the time, and um, I'm going to turn it over to Morty. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much again, and, and stay safe and brachot to everyone.